Hey guys, welcome to the Bitcoin Fortress Podcast, helping you increase your financial freedom. This is episode 77, recorded here on August 13th, 2023. This podcast is for entertainment only and is not investing advice, so please do your own homework. All right, we'll get started with the market update and outlook then we'll get into the bitcoin news got a lot of stuff to go over this week um i went deeper into the google search to find some interesting stuff and uh surprise surprise most of it is not on mainstream media as usual uh but did just get back from vacation so feeling refreshed and ready to dive in so NASDAQ and S&P both posted a second straight weekly decline as hotter-than-expected U.S. producer prices data pushed Treasury yields higher and sank rate-sensitive mega-cap growth stocks. The much-anticipated consumer inflation report on Thursday showed that the headline and core consumer price index was unchanged from June, bolstering bets among market participants that the Federal Reserve would hold off on further rate hikes. However, Hotter-than-anticipated producer inflation data on Friday played spoil sport for risk-on appetite, with both the headline and the core producer price index for July rising from the previous month. Still, the overall picture points to a slowdown in inflation and has even led to hopes of disinflation. There is a rising consensus among traders that the Federal Reserve will be able to deliver a so-called soft landing. For the week, the Dow Jones average scored a 0.6% gain, while the S&P edged to 0.3% lower, and the NASDAQ composite lost 1.9% for its biggest back-to-back weekly loss since December. The energy sector had the strongest return of the week on the back of higher oil prices, while the technology sector saw the biggest drop. Read a preview. Oh, yeah. And, and of course, we'll, we'll go into the preview of next week here shortly. Only comment on this is uh, if you think this is a bit ridiculous uh, that we are wondering what the Fed's going to do, and uh, that's pretty much dominating uh, investors' uh, uh, mind. It's it is ridiculous, and uh, you know especially because these uh, I think I've talked about this before, but the the statistics are have been skewed so much over the years and how they're calculated that they've they've pretty much lost all their meaning other than some kind of directional uh you know uh, signpost but if you think inflation is really consumer what the what is reported as the consumer price inflation um you're fooling yourself and and again all you have to do is go to the grocery store go to the gas station or buy anything else that you need uh, to live your life that you you need every day to know that it it ain't three percent or four percent or whatever they report. Um, but it is kind of interesting that that this really dominates the you know investing discussions, uh, whereas in you know the good old days people actually looked at you know companies and looked at their under underlying fundamentals and 
decided whether or not the market was pricing that correctly or not. Now it's, uh, you know, first half of the year, tech stocks took off. Now they're selling off. So if you didn't get in on that ride up, uh, you better get out because now everybody's pivoting towards value stocks and, you know, uh, interest rates are going to be higher for longer and inflation might not be done with us yet. And if, you know, gas prices and oil prices continue to rise as they have uh, recently, then that will trigger the next wave of inflation. But then there are people that, you know, <laughs> are like, no, no, no deflation's coming. Uh, it's not inflation. It's going to be deflation. Prices are going to keep dropping. Um, and, um, you know, so of course, depending on what you believe, <clears throat> you'll be investing in different things. And so that's why I always uh, talk about diversification because I'm just tired of it. You know, I'm just, you know, spread the table sometimes part of your portfolio is going to work. Sometimes it isn't and, um, uh, hodl Bitcoin. So moving on to the, uh, week ahead, the retail sector will be in the spotlight next week with home Depot target and Walmart lined up to issue their Q2 earnings reports and update on consumer trends. The U.S. Census Bureau will also issue the July retail sales report, which is forecast to show a slight acceleration from the pace seen in June. Traders will also be watching the release of FOMC minutes from the Fed's July meeting for more clues on the direction of interest rates after the CPI print calmed some nerves. Uh, overall, the underlying details of the July CPI inflation data are consistent with ongoing progress on disinflation. And for those of you who don't know, disinflation just means a, a lower level of inflation. So, i.e. going from 9% to 3% is disinflation. Deflation is actually when it goes negative, like minus 1%, minus 2%. And uh, central banks can't, can't have that. They will not allow that to happen very long. And that's when they fire up the money printers and gold and Bitcoin take off. So if we do see deflation, then uh, if you're holding gold, Bitcoin, hard assets, then you're, you don't care. Uh, well, you do care because that could be really bad for the economy. But from an investing standpoint, that's not a big deal. Inflation, different different set of, uh, you know, uh, problems. But again, uh, the Fed is, is definitely going to continue to fight that with higher rates, which some people have said, hey, you know, maybe higher rates isn't going to help inflation because, um, you know, it's uh, it's going to increase the uh, amount of interest that the government has to pay, which then requires them to borrow more, which then, um, you know, you have to think about it, too. All the interest that the government is paying on, say, short term treasuries, where does that money go? I mean, it goes into if you're not in bank accounts making 0.01%, if you put some of your money or most of your savings into money market funds or government treasury, short-term government treasuries, you're getting that money. So at a minimum, it's going to give you a wealth effect where you're like, hey, I'm feeling pretty good. You know, I'm getting uh, $1,000 a month when I used to get nothing uh, or $100 a month and I used to get nothing, right? 
so then you feel richer, you want to spend more. Or you actually take that money and use it for something, you know? And so it's it's ironic because it's almost like the harder the Fed tries to calm things down, the more they're likely to stir the pot uh, with, with their uh, activity that they're doing. Anyway, bringing it back to this, uh, core services inflation trended higher in the month. Other component level trends are evolving in line with our expectations, in particular rents and used car prices softened. In fact, I read something the other day that said used car price declines are actually accelerating, uh, which makes sense because they were ridiculously high during the um, aftermath of the pandemic because nobody could buy a new car. So everybody bought used cars and then the prices went crazy. Uh, but now, you know, interest rates are super, super high for car loans. They're notably higher for used cars than they are for new cars. So uh, and, and as the, uh, you know, uh, people have therefore been buying new cars over used cars, uh, but now the prices are starting to drop on used cars. So, uh, and then rents, of course, have started to go down, but that, that's a very lagging indicator. So you don't really see that in the CPI for a while. Uh, uh, clothing and airfare has also softened. Uh, and this is all uh, from a Goldman Sachs macro strategist, Gurpreet Gill. Um, so that's kind of what's happening in the markets. Um, we're going to continue to watch the Fed to tell us where we need to put our money. Um, and, uh, uh, man, if that doesn't wear you out, then uh, nothing will. But definitely, I think uh, from what I've read in last week or two, most investors, whether you're a bull or a bear, are super frustrated because the market is just bouncing up and down sideways. Um, so, you know, you go into one thing and then the next day it sells off and then you go into something else and then, you know, it's the wrong thing because it's another thing that, you know, and again, with all the program trading that goes on and stuff, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty tough. So, um, I don't know, buy and hold, diversify, leave, leave uh, Wall Street to the experts, let them have fun destroying each other. Uh back and forth. All right, now we will move into the Bitcoin news. Got a lot of stuff to go over here. First one is from Decrypt. Uh, this was posted on August 10th. Post Malone, this is CBDCs on Joe Rogan podcast and Bitcoiners love it. Um, and uh, I saw lots of posts of this video on my X, I guess it's called now. It's not Twitter anymore. Uh, feed. So I thought it'd be interesting to dive into this one. Central bank digital currencies are permeating the mainstream narrative lately as United States politicians rail against the concept. Now Bitcoin supporters are cheering after prominent public figures Joe Rogan and Post Malone trashed the idea of a digital dollar. In a recent conversation with famed rapper Post Malone on the popular Joe Rogan Experience podcast, the, dual, the duo discussed what they see as the threats that government-backed digital currencies pose to society at large. Asked by Post Malone what he thinks of the prospect of a U.S. CBDC, Rogan responded, No fucking way, no way, I think that's checkmate, that's game over. Post Malone agreed with the sentiment. 
the conversation veered into a dystopian outlook on society, with Rogan raising red flags regarding a possible social credit score that will be used to monitor and control behavior, which is most of us know is happening right now in China. Although the rapper reckons an all-encompassing tracking system already exists for Rogan, the end game is government control over people's own money. They would like they would like to be able to strip you of your money, Rogan said of the US government, suggesting that this will help make sure people comply. This compliance, according to Rogan, whose podcast has amassed billions of total episode downloads to date, will be driven by a fear of the government arbitrarily seizing people's money. People won't want everything they've worked for to be taken overnight instantly, he said, emphasizing that this will leave people feeling powerless and with nobody to call. Uh, absent from the conversation was any mention of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, but the back and forth by the two celebrities yielded largely positive reviews from crypto industry leaders and personalities who broadly agree with the potential negative impacts of CBDCs. Custodia Bank CEO Caitlin Long, who's already tossing up with the government, sees eye to eye with Rogan and Post Malone. I agree with both Joe Rogan and Post Malone. She told Decrypt a CBDC would be the end game because it would be the end of privacy and the end of property rights and financial assets. For Sam Callahan, Bitcoin analyst at financial services company Swan, the conversation was welcome. It's encouraging to see a popular figure like Post Malone address this important issue on the country's largest podcast, he told Decrypt, signaling its penetration into the mainstream consciousness. That sentiment has been pushed into the mainstream by two U.S. presidential hopefuls of late from both sides of the aisle, Ron DeSantis and Robert Kennedy Jr., the latter claimed previously that central bank digital currencies are instruments of control, while DeSantis suggested that President Joe Biden is waging a war on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's why you want to own Bitcoin, because uh, nobody can take it away from you and uh, mess with it. And uh, it is outside of government control. So stay humble and stack sats. Uh, that article mentioned Custodia Bank, so I thought it was interesting to get an update on what they're up to. As you may recall, Custodia Bank applied to be a full reserve bank, um, meaning that uh, deposits would be 100% backed um, by, um, you know, whatever you deposited. And so they were going to um, handle Bitcoin deposits. And so therefore, if you deposit one Bitcoin in the bank, they'll keep one in reserve. And so you never have to worry about getting rug pulled by your bank. Uh, and the FDIC didn't like that um, and declined their application. And so they've been fighting with them. But it looks like they're going to continue to operate. Uh, so because uh, they already are operating, I guess, in uh, the state of Wyoming, I believe. Uh, so this article is uh, from Bitcoin.com. This was uh, updated a couple days ago. Custodia Bank goes live, bridging digital assets with U.S. dollar payments. Many crypto and narrow banking proponents have awaited the arrival of Custodia Bank, a financial institution that is tech forward and customer centric. We're grateful to our partners who appreciate our approach of complying with banking laws and regulations to Wyoming for its enabling laws to our team and investors and to the law-abiding digital asset industry. So CEO Caitlin Long, Custodia says the bank's regional bank style 
risk management program along with its dedicated its dedication to following regulations set it apart from competitors. Services now available include U.S. dollar deposits and U.S. government money market fund services tailored to U.S.-based business customers. This includes digital asset businesses, fintechs, banks, corporate treasurers, trusts, pension funds, and startups. The bank's strategy is to eventually serve customers worldwide, providing enhanced regulatory clarity and minimize transactional risk with its unique reserve model. Custodia operates under the first Special Purpose Depository Institution, or SPDI, legal and regulatory framework in the United States. This approach allows the bank to offer a full suite of financial services for both U.S. dollars and digital assets. Demand deposit accounts are protected under a 100% reserve requirement, and the bank offers API solutions for programmable disc, uh, programmable accounts, payments, settlement, and future custody products, Custodia's website discloses. And going back to the federal or the federal reserve thing, I think they applied. They were applying for a, a federal reserve master account. Uh, so they're still they're operating, but they wanted a federal reserve master account, and they were denied that because of whatever you know their business model and that sort of thing. Um, but I do think that they're still able to. Obviously, they're operating, so they're still able to operate and provide. Um, banking services, uh, you know, uh, along the lines of what they described there. Custodia Bank's journey to this point has been marked by challenges. In December, they informed the U.S. Federal Reserve of their intention to complete a specific task list and followed through despite it no longer being required. Independent reviews, new partnerships, and the development of new services to meet market needs were all part of the process, Custodia detailed on Friday. In January 2023, the Federal Reserve Board issued a denial for Custodia's application to become a member of the system, citing significant safety and soundness risks related to crypto assets and an insufficient risk management framework. The denial reflected broader regulatory skepticism toward digital assets and narrow banking techniques. However, Custodia's perseverance and alignment with Wyoming's innovative legal framework for SPDIs have allowed them to navigate these challenges and emerge as a regulated bank. So there you have it. Uh, so we wish them luck and it's good to obviously have Bitcoin friendly banking institutions because a, a bank like Custodia can partner with um, many of the Bitcoin only companies that allow you to buy Bitcoin, um, you know, using an OTC desk or whatever, you know, they have. Um, and uh, uh, will support, um, you know, adoption and, and being able to easily buy Bitcoin uh, in the United States. So that's actually really good news. Uh, this article is a little older. This is from July, but I found it on the South China Morning Post. And I thought it was kind of interesting because it talks a bit about China and, you know, how they sort of tried to ban crypto and yet it doesn't really work, which is, it's always interesting because, you know, that's the most authoritarian country probably in the world. Uh, certainly the most technologically advanced authoritarian country in the world. And so, uh, it's, it's always interesting to see how, what they're trying to do does or doesn't work. Um, so this article is entitled, China's Crypto Crimes Exposed Capital Controls Loopholes as Millions in Virtual Currencies Seized. 
Chinese police appear to have stepped up their crackdown on cryptocurrency-related crimes in recent months, and their big seizures uh, in a few prominent cases show how people are using virtual currency to bypass Beijing's strict controls over the yuan. With the yuan having gradually depreciated against the U.S. dollar this year, reaching a rate of 7 to 1 for the fourth time since 2019, capital outflows have been on the rise. A higher yuan number means it takes more yuan to buy a U.S. dollar, and the yuan is currently about 6.5% weaker than it was a year ago. On Tuesday, police in Jingmen, Hubei province, dis discussed an online gambling case in which virtual currencies were widely used to avoid regulation. It was said to involve 400 billion yuan, or $55.4 billion U.S. worth of total turnover circulation and more than 50,000 people. Police did not say which virtual currency was used, but they said they had already managed to freeze multiple accounts with a combined value of U.S. $160 million. In a separate case on Monday, police in the central province of Shangxi said that they had busted a money laundering case involving 380 million yuan worth of USDT, a stablecoin issued by Hong Kong-based company Tether, to mirror the price of the U.S. dollar. The State Administration of Foreign Exchange, the nation's forex regulator, has implemented a variety of measures to monitor cross-border capital flows. It also fines violators. Ten firms or individuals were fined in late June to help maintain the forex market order. The recent virtual currency cases, however, shed light on loopholes in China's capital control system. Chinese regulators have long banned the mining and trading of cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and Ethereum, citing their perceived threat to the financial system. And for the past few years, Beijing has been rolling out its central bank digital currency known as the E-Yuan or E-CNY with a series of ongoing pilot programs across the country. This is China's official currency digital form with the same value transferable like cash using an app. Many cryptocurrency miners or traders have subsequently gone underground or moved overseas, including Hong Kong, which could become a cryptocurrency hub. The persistent depreciation of the yuan this year due to its widened yield differential with the U.S. dollar has added to the capital outflow pressure. Foreign investors sold Chinese debt for the sixth consecutive month in June, even as emerging Asia saw strong inflows of funds, according to the Institute of International Finance. A total of $1.59 billion U.S. was removed from China's debt last month compared with U.S. $4.19 billion in May. Its data showed Chinese equities posted $1.93 billion worth of inflows from overseas funds in June, the IIF said, compared with May inflows of $126 million. Wow, that's a big increase. Foreign fund managers have also been selling vast amounts of Chinese securities over the past two years in response to Chinese policies and mounting U.S.-China tensions, according to Atlantic Council report last month. International institutional investors have been net sellers of about 1 trillion yuan of the country's bonds since early 2022, the report said. So anyway, like I said earlier, this is interesting that um, the most authoritarian country in the world with you know a closed capital account is still, in, still having trouble managing that with uh, presumably Bitcoin, part of the mix, and, and other cryptocurrencies. So... Uh, I would consider that uh, a hopeful lesson. Uh, next up, um, got to have the uh, update on our friend Sam Bankman-Fried. 
This article is from Coindesk. This is on August 11th, uh, posted on August 11th. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried jailed ahead of trial. Uh, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried was sent to jail ahead of his October trial on multiple financial crime charges after the federal judge after a federal judge revoked his release on bond Friday afternoon, saying the former crypto heavyweight appears to have tried to tamper with witnesses. What? Sam Bankman-Fried is willing to risk crossing the line in an effort to get right up to the line, wherever it is, said Judge Lewis Kaplan of the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York, later concluding, all things considered, I'm going to revoke bail. He added, my conclusion is there is probable cause to believe the defendant has attempted to tamper with witnesses at least twice. There is a rebuttable presumption that there is no set of conditions that will ensure Bankman-Fried will not be a danger. Barbara Freed and Joseph Bankman, uh, Bankman-Fried's parents, were present during the hearing. Freed quietly cried after the judge's ruling. Aww. Bankman-Fried, the 31-year-old former CEO of crypto exchange FTX, appeared in court on Friday after the U.S. Department of Justice moved to send him back to jail on allegations of violating the terms of his bond by trying to tamper with multiple witnesses. According to the DOJ, Bankman-Fried's reaching out to former FTX U.S. General Counsel Ryan Miller and using a virtual private network to, in the words of his defense team, watch the Super Bowl were enough to require a modification of his bail conditions. The last straw, however, was Bankman-Fried sharing part of former Alameda Research CEO Caroline Ellison's private diary with the New York Times. Um, Judge Kaplan cited both attempts to contact former FTX employees in a lengthy verbal order. While the use of a VPN in and of itself may not be overly significant, it speaks to Bankman-Fried's mindset, he said. Bankman-Fried's defense team admitted he shared some diary pages with the Times, though his attorneys disputed that he was trying to tamper with a witness. Here we have a very thin record with a lot of spin, his lawyer told the judge. The defense team also argued that jailing Bankman-Fried would make it more difficult to prepare for his trial. Judge Kaplan wasn't convinced by these arguments. I don't think that the revocation is quite the insurmountable problem. During the hearing, Assistant U.S. Attorney Daniel Sassoon argued that detaining Bankman-Fried was further warranted by the fact that he was increasingly visiting New York for pretrial conferences and trial prep. He's effectively unsupervised while he's here, she said. The DOJ also had alternative options in case the judge rejected detaining Bankman-Fried outright. The government would have been okay with a home incarceration banning all visitors and blocking all internet access except for two databases needed to prepare for trial. This would have included blocking Google Drive, Sassoon said, noting that Ellison's diary was part of the drives, drive files Bankman-Fried had access to. Mark Cohen, Bankman-Fried's attorney, tried arguing that there was insufficient legal basis to jail him ahead of trial and that the standards set by precedent, precedent cases had not been met. The only reason we know about Bankman-Fried meeting with the Times reporter is because he was complying with his bail conditions, Cohen said. Sassoon, the prosecutor, disagreed. I think the fact the defendant was more subtle in his methods than a mobster doesn't mean it was benign, she said. <laughs> That's a great quote. Bankman-Fried is currently set to go on trial at the start of October on wire fraud, commodities fraud, securities fraud, money laundering, and related conspiracy charges. He faces another trial tentatively scheduled for next March on additional charges brought by the DOJ after Bankman-Fried's arrest and extradition. 
Certain pretrial motions from both the prosecution and the defense are due in the court by Monday, August 14th. Attorneys from both the defense and the prosecution said they were on track to meet next week's deadlines. Bankman-Fried's lawyers said they would appeal the decision and motion to stay the revocation of the bail until that appeal was heard. The judge rejected the stay. Bankman-Fried's going to jail ahead of his trial does not mean he will go to prison after it. He would need to be found guilty of at least one of the charges laid against him and sentenced to prison after. So this, again, was quite the talk uh, last week, and everybody is obviously happy that uh, he's locked up because um, he's a real bad dude, you know, and uh, you want to talk about somebody who's the antithesis of the Bitcoin ethos. Uh, This guy is a fiat Ponzi, probably will go down in history, uh, you know, is kind of like the modern version of Bernie Madoff, except Madoff kept his Ponzi going for many, 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 many years. And um, uh, SBFs uh, imploded quite rapidly and quite spectacularly. Uh, Next up, this is a little bit of Bitcoin mining, I suppose. Uh, This is from Bitcoin.com. August 13th, uh, so it was posted, uh, sorry, it was posted three days ago, so on August 10th, TSMC, and again, I'll include links to all the uh, the, uh, articles in the show notes if you want to read them for yourself. TSMC advances towards two nanometer chips in Taiwan, a breakthrough that could revolutionize Bitcoin mining. This latest development follows the recent discovery of Samsung's three nanometer chips being used in a commercial setting, a milestone in the industry. TSMC's two nanometer chips boasting processing speeds 10 to 15% faster than their three nanometer counterparts could significantly transform industries like AI and Bitcoin mining. Nikkei reports that the Kaohsiung plant currently under construction will be the second hub for these advanced semiconductors following Shinchu County. The decision comes after a board meeting on Tuesday where the company allocated roughly $6 billion for capital investments in Taiwan, with a portion going towards the Kaohsiung facility. The company's plans reflect a shift in focus as it originally intended to produce older legacy semiconductors in Kaohsiung. However, a change in plans was considered following the flagging demand for computer chips, which started after the pandemic. The new venture towards two nanometer chips aligns with the global trend of advancing chip technology, aiming to meet the demands of fields like AI and cloud computing. UK staff reporter Hideaki Ryugen disclosed that Kaohsiung Mayor Chen Chimai expressed support for TSMC's new initiative, committing to adjustments to water and electricity supply to ensure smooth construction. Rugen further noted that TSMC is also seeking a site for a new plant in Taichung, which could become its third two-nanometer chip hub in Taiwan. In the context of the broader industry, TSMC's advancement toward two-nanometer chips echoes the recent discovery of Samsung's three-nanometer gate all-around semiconductor in MicroBT's WattsMiner M56S++ Bitcoin mining rig. This marked the first known application of the three nanometer technology discovered by Tech Insights. Samsung's breakthrough has long been speculated and its commercialization can aid 
in the production of even more advanced chips. The discovery of Samsung's 3 nanometer chip in the Bitcoin mining machine is a crucial development, enhancing performance and energy efficiency. The Watts Miner M56S++ Bitcoin mining rig produces an estimated 230 to 254 terahash per second, and the utilization of Samsung's technology could be a harbinger of things to come in the industry. For instance, MicroBT's rival Bitmain is believed to utilize chips supplied by TSMC, the same company venturing into two nanometer technology. A uh, couple interesting things in this article. Number one, that they're building all these new plants in Taiwan, which, uh, you know, uh, if you think Taiwan's strategically important, and uh, then you're right. And uh, even though they're trying to build some new plants in the U.S., um, it takes a long time to get all that stuff permitted. And in fact, I heard something the other day that the plants that they are trying to build in the US, TSMC that is, uh, they're having a hard time finding not only people to build them because they're, 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 they're so unique. And so, you know, uh, obviously clean rooms and all this kind of stuff, uh, but also people to operate them. Uh, so, um, you know, we'll have to keep an eye on that. But anyway, the, the, uh, advancement of the uh, chip technology and the impact that could have on Bitcoin mining, of course, is uh, very interesting and uh, really what caught my eye with that one. Uh, then uh, next up, uh, this is um, from Coindesk. This was posted on uh, August 9th, was updated on August 10th. And uh, so there was some news last week about PayPal uh, launching a stablecoin, and so I thought this, uh, rather than you know re regurgitate that, which I'm sure this article will go over, I thought it would be interesting to hear uh, about Congressman Maxine Waters, who says she's deeply concerned about PayPal's new stablecoin. So uh, they went ahead with it anyway, but it sounds like there's going to be some uh, pushback from lawmakers and perhaps regulators eventually. Um, Rep Representative Maxine Waters uh, released a statement Wednesday saying she's deeply concerned that PayPal has chosen to launch its own stablecoin while there is still no federal framework for regulation, oversight, and enforcement of these assets. And as we know, you know, um, Congress and, and indeed the regulators are, are very, very focused on stablecoins because those really act as um, substitutes for the U.S. dollar, and uh, they really have no no real control over over them at all. Um, that would include Tether, U.S. dollar coin. You know, this is uh, this PayPal thing is based on Paxos, which is another stable coin. Um, Anyway, the article goes on, PayPal introduced its new dollar-backed stablecoin, PYUSD, on Monday, the first time a global payments firm has issued its own stablecoin. Waters, the top Democrat on the House Financial Services Committee, noted that PayPal has 435 million customers around the world, more than the number of online accounts of all the largest banks combined. Given PayPal's size and reach, federal oversight and enforcement of its stablecoin operations is essential in order to guarantee Customer, consumer protections and alleviate financial stability concerns, Waters wrote. Rotrow, 
The House committee recently approved legislation seeking to set up guardrails for U.S. stablecoins, with several of the Waters' uh, fellow Democrats bucking her opposition to vote with Republicans. That bill is now eligible for a floor vote in the House, though it would be unlikely to get a warm welcome from Senate Democrats if approved there. Waters criticized the Republican-sponsored bill for approving stablecoins like PYUSD that are issued under state regimes, but preventing the Federal Reserve from overseeing them. Moreover, the Republican bill undermines the Fed's role as our central bank, making it harder to protect the economy against inflation or support maximum employment if stablecoins are broadly adopted, she added. Oh, no. By contrast, Rep. Representative Patrick McHenry, chair of the House Financial Services Committee, uh, he's Republican from North Carolina, expressed support for PayPal's new stablecoin in a statement issued on Monday. This announcement is a clear signal that stablecoins, if issued under a clear regulatory framework, hold promise as a pillar of our 21st century payment system, McHenry wrote. And uh, so anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting um, that, well, first of all, that there's, you know, obviously there's, there is a, like a bipartisan agreement on how stablecoins should be regulated uh, other than they need to be regulated. And um, uh, again, it, uh, there was also uh, some uh, somebody dove into the code and identified that you know there's there's all kinds of in addition to being rug able to be rug pulled by PayPal, who controls the stablecoin, it's also built on the Ethereum network, which is centralized and could you could be rug pulled there. And then there's also a specific code in there that allows your account to be frozen or or um, uh, or your funds, you know, basically seized. Uh, and uh, some people posted on Twitter, it's right there, and they circled where it is in the code and that sort of thing. So you could be rug pulled like, you know, six different ways. So, um, you know, basically, I don't think this is a good thing to buy. Um, uh if you need a stable coin, just put, keep some cash in a bank account, you know, or in a money market fund, and then just buy Bitcoin, you know. All right, moving on here, we have, uh, this is from Crypto News. And uh, now we're going to descend into more shitcoinery. Uh, this is uh, August 11th, 2023, as when it was posted. Coinbase's new base blockchain draws $10 million inflows day after launch. Here's the latest. Uh, so Base, a new Ethereum Layer 2 blockchain that has been developed by crypto exchange Coinbase, saw inflows worth just over $10 million on its first day after launch. According to data from Dune Analytics, the $10 million were transferred to the network by over the, uh, by over the course of 24 hours on Thursday, one day after its launch. A little more than 15,000 new users joined base on Thursday, and the day saw 40% fewer transactions than on Wednesday. The network, which officially went live on Wednesday this week, launched without its own native token, but Coinbase has encouraged others to build projects and launch their own tokens on base. Among other things, popular but controversial meme coins such as Bald, B-A-L-D, have launched on base, attracting a large number of traders seeking to profit from the decentralized exchange trading frenzy. 
Bald has been accused of being a scam after the deployer of the token suddenly and without warning removed nearly all liquidity from DEX liquidity pools earlier this month in what was described as a rug pull. Base is fully open to the public and according to Jesse Pollack. So this is basically a, a layer two protocol on Ethereum that allows you to create new, new tokens, I guess, uh, is how I understand it. Uh, Base is fully open to the public, according to Jesse Pollock, who is overseeing Base on behalf of Coinbase. The network already has over 100 operational decentralized apps running on it. Data from Dune also showed that most Base users transferred between $500 and $1,000 to the network, with the biggest whale so far transferring a whopping $17 million worth of crypto via a bridge. Wow. Coinbase has encouraged users to bridge their ETH to the new network, promising free non-fungible tokens in return as an in an effort to boost the activity engagement on base. So far, on-chain data shows that more than 125,000 users have minted over 30 million free NFTs on base. Okay. Uh, this is a shitcoin. Um, stay away from it. And that's all I'm going to say. Uh, moving on, uh, some now a little bit more focused Bitcoin news. Uh, the first one here is from Bitcoin Magazine. Breaking news. This is uh, was posted a couple days ago. SEC delays ARK Invest and 21 shares spot, Inco spot Bitcoin ETF application. Uh, Friday morning, the Securities and Exchange Commission solicited comments on 21 shares and Kathy Wood ARK. Kathy Wood's ARK Invest spot Bitcoin exchange traded fund application, further delaying the process. This is the second delay in the listing process for the CTF, with the first delay happening earlier this year. The third deadline for the SEC's decision is scheduled for later this year uh, for November 11th. If the SEC delays the application again, it will go to its fourth and final deadline on January 10th, 2024. The race for approval for a spot Bitcoin ETF in the United States gained huge momentum earlier this year when the world's largest asset manager, BlackRock, filed for one of their own. After that, big institutions, including Fidelity, Vanek, and WisdomTree, among others, piled in and filed for their own spot Bitcoin ETFs. The first mover advantage of being the first to have its Bitcoin ETF approved and listed may prove to be vital in its performance. Uh, Galaxy Digital CEO and billionaire Mike Novogratz said in an earnings call earlier this week, the news of both BlackRock filing ETF and, quite frankly, Invesco plus Galaxy were going to fight like cats and dogs to win market share there. Once it's approved, it's a big, big deal. Earlier this year, on July 27th, the SEC approved a leveraged 2x Bitcoin futures ETF, which is total garbage. Never invest in leveraged, uh, you know, uh, and, and or Bitcoin futures ETFs. Uh, this is not investing advice, but don't do it, which leaves many scratching their heads as to how that is safe for investors, but not a spot ETF. Grayscale, who currently is in a legal battle with the SEC over the denial of its spot Bitcoin ETF application, sent a letter to the United States Court of Appeals protesting exactly this. Uh, and then there's a link at the bottom of the article uh, for more information on the spot Bitcoin ETF race. So um, I guess we'll see, you know, eventually, probably, I mean, Canada has spot Bitcoin ETFs, you know, so someday the U.S. will get them, but we just don't know when, 
but uh, we would imagine eventually, uh, especially with you know, BlackRock in there and everybody else, but uh, the SEC is not making it easy, that's for sure. Uh, next up is uh, from Cointelegraph. This was posted today. Articles entitled Bitcoin bought by corporate giants should not be feared. And this is a Michael Saylor uh, interview. So the article says, during a recent podcast interview, MicroStrategy's Michael Saylor expressed the opinion that, a, that large corporations purchasing and holding Bitcoin in their custody should not be a cause for concern. While speaking to Natalie Brunel on the Coin Stories podcast released on August 7th, Saylor emphasized the inevitability of third-party and corporate participation growing in the Bitcoin space. However, he suggested that while Bitcoin enthusiasts may desire total self-control or sovereignty over their Bitcoin, it might not be the only answer, as people will be using Bitcoin for diverse purposes. We need to be prepared for Bitcoin to infuse everything, Saylor stated, explaining that as Bitcoin becomes more integrated into society, it will have many use cases and there will not be a one-size-fits-all model. Uh, and this is a quote from him. There are different types of wrappers. Some people will always be self-custody. Some will be multi-sig. Some will need a layer three custodian. There will be a need for political or utility or functionality purposes. From a political standpoint, relying on a third party might be the only course of action. The mayor of New York is still the mayor of New York. Unless you get rid of New York City, California, or Iceland, the country political reasons will mean the need for custodians. On the technical side, there will be people that will want to transact in crypto with their mobile phones, so trusting layer three third parties such as Bank of America and Apple will be unavoidable, Saylor said. Another quote, Bitcoin is going to be a base layer. There's going to be layer twos like Lightning to make things fast, and there's going to be layer threes like Bank of America and Apple. Custodial layer three is going to exist to provide functionality. As for natural reasons, Saylor suggested the possibility that it's safer for certain people to entrust their assets to others. He gave the example of an 85-year-old grappling with Alzheimer's or the desire to secure holdings for a yet-to-be-born grandchild. I didn't complain that my mother and father had the car keys when I was 12 years old and I didn't get the car, car key, Saylor stated. Saylor stated that the optimal blend of Bitcoin integrations will be determined by the market. We shouldn't be afraid of all the different ways people integrate, wrap, embed, or execute with Bitcoin. There's no one right answer. The marketplace will determine the right mix of integrations with Bitcoin. And uh, I couldn't agree more. It is a free market like we really haven't had um, uh, at least over the last 50 years. And um, uh, we do need to keep our minds open to this. And I think I talked about this in one of my uh, blog posts uh, as it relates to, you know, the need for something like Fediment, you know, uh, where, um, you know, there you make certain trade-offs in order to um, have, you know, uh, access to your coins and that you don't have to self-custody and, and, and um, deal with all of the setup. Uh, and, and you know one of the arguments behind Fedi Mint and some of these other protocols um, is that uh, people will um, 
you know, there's a large majority of people are, are going to have a, a hard time with uh, with uh, self custody, um, or that's the the presumption, and um, and therefore there needs to be tools to to help them with that. And again, what Sailor's talking about is even broader than that. That um, you know, there's going to be political considerations, laws that have to be complied with, et cetera, et cetera. And there are going to be multiple layers. So Bitcoin being the base layer, you could certainly, if you want, and have the inclination to, and you should buy and self custody. Um, but um, when you start using Lightning, there are certain trade offs uh, that you you know you get maybe greater privacy, faster speed, but you do lose some of the security uh, over your coins. You know, you could potentially, you know, if you're using a centralized wallet like wallet of satoshi or something like that um uh, you could get rug pulled you know so so you kind of need to think in terms of layers and threat models and probably uh, keep the majority of your uh, bitcoin stored in self-custody maybe in a multi-sig collaborative custody or you know your own um, solution and then keep a small amount you know spending money chump change if you want to call it um, in a custodial uh, lightning wallet and um, you can use that for everyday stuff and if, if that whatever got hacked or stolen or compromised in some way you know lost the keys whatever it is uh, it's not the end of the world um, and there are non-custodial Bitcoin wallets that you can that you can um, have but those have other trade-offs you know obviously you know, the big one is there's nobody to call to restore your account uh, if you lose it. It's no different than like a Bitcoin uh, custodial, uh, self uh, non-custodial wallet, I should say. So anyway, um, wise words from uh, Michael Saylor. Moving on. Uh, last article here from Decrypt. I uh, thought this was a little bit of hopium to end the podcast this week. This was posted on August 7th. Articles entitled Long-Term Bitcoin Holder Metric Hits New All-Time High. Long-Term Bitcoin Holders Now Control a Record 14.599 Million Bitcoin, according to data from blockchain analytics firm Glassnode. Over the past seven days, the total balance held in these wallets has increased by 43,949 Bitcoin or $1.274 billion at current prices. Long-term Bitcoin holders are addresses that have held coins for at least 155 days. According to Glassnode, previous research shows that this type of address is statistically unlikely to spend and thus in Bitcoin slang assumed to be hodling. The amount held by long-term holders also accounts for 75% of Bitcoin's circulating supply, suggesting investors are opting to hold onto their assets for extended periods of time. In February, long-term Bitcoin holders controlled as much as 78% of the network circulating supply. Still, this sustained pattern of long-term holding may indicate a growing belief in the leading cryptocurrency's potential to serve as, as both a store of value. Checkmate, a pseudonymous on-chain analyst for Glassnode, has meanwhile pointed to the fact that the realized volatility for Bitcoin has also plunged to historical lows. Across one month to one year timeframes, this is the quietest we've seen the corn <laughs> since March 2020, wrote Checkmate, 
Historically, such low volatility aligns with the post-bear market hangover periods, the reaccumulation phase. Realized volatility, sometimes referred to as historical volatility, refers to the price volatility in asset experiences over a specific period. It's typically calculated based on the change from one closing price to the next. Bitcoin is currently changing hands at $29,010, down 0.1% over the past 24 hours, according to CoinGecko. The world's largest cryptocurrency is also down 4.3% in the past month after hitting levels above 31500 in mid-July amid a new wave of Bitcoin ETF applications. Still, Bitcoin is up 75% since the start of the year, solidly over performing leading stock indexes such as NASDAQ Composite, which is up 33% year-to-date, S&P 500, which is up 17% year-to-date, and Dow Jones, which is up 5.82% year-to-date. Okay, and then uh, last, but certainly not least, check out this week's newsletter on Substack. I will include a link in the show notes. Uh, the article is entitled, Bitcoin. The Printing Press of the Digital Age, Big Changes Coming. And with that, I will thank you for listening to the podcast this week. If you enjoyed the show, please like and leave a comment. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. If you're not listening on Fountain, you probably should be. You can earn Bitcoin just for listening to your favorite podcast there. It's actually where I do all of my podcast listening now. Um, Sometimes you get 60 um, sats, sometimes you get 100 sats, and sometimes it's 6,000. So it's, it's kind of random. Some, sometimes you don't get any. So, you know, but uh, anyway, and then it's, uh, it's, you can also support the show there if you want to send me some sats or stream sats while you listen. Um, so check out Fountain. You can also follow my Substack again at bitcoinfortress.substack.com. Uh, I am on X, I guess it's called now to Twitter. My handle is at Nick Reichert. And uh, I'm also on Noster. So if you uh, go to my X profile, you'll see my Noster pub key there, and you can follow me on Noster as well. And I will talk to you all next week. Bye bye. <laughs>